Welcome to this week's podcast covering December 20th to 26th of 2021. I am David J. Ridges, the author of the Gospel series, The Gospel Studies Made Easier. By the way, the four-volume Old Testament Made Easier, third edition, is now available where LDS books are sold. The main focus of this week's lesson is the marvelous document called The Living Christ, the Testimony of the Apostles, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It would be very helpful if you have a copy of the living Christ in front of you, because that's going to be the main focus of this time together. If you don't happen to have a printout of it, you can go to the end of the lesson for this week's podcast. And if you go clear to the end, you will see a copy of the living Christ. If you can find that, then you would be able to follow along in that. I would even suggest if you have a copy of The Living Christ available, that you have it so you can make some notes on it as we go through it, uh, word for word. You could even print one out on your computer if that's a technology that's available to you. So... In order to have a copy before you, why don't you put this on pause and bring it up on your electronic device or print a copy out or grab your a copy that you can make notes on. This was given on January 1st, 2000. The Living Christ was. President Russell Nelson in the April 2017 General Conference made reference to this. I'm going to read a comment that you can find in the May 2017 Ensign or Leona, page 40. President Nelson said, It was this very statement of the prophet referring to the value of the testimony of living apostles, by the way. Now, going back to President Nelson, the quote that he gave, it was this very statement of the prophet that provided the incentive for 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. By the way, that's the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles in January of 2000. Now going on with President Nelson's quote, it was this very statement of the prophet that provided the incentive for 15 prophets, seers, and revelators to issue and sign their testimony to commemorate the 2000th anniversary of the Lord's birth. That historic testimony is titled, quote, The Living Christ, close quote. And President Nelson goes on to say, Many members have memorized its truths. Others barely know of its existence. 
And as you, as you seek to learn more about Jesus Christ, I urge you to study the living Christ. So that's going to be the focus of our time together today. We're going to go through the document, the living Christ, and point out many, many doctrines in reference to Christ. By the way, one of the purposes of the doctrine covenants, according to the Savior, is to bring out and clarify points of my doctrine. If you have a moment to turn in your own doctrine and covenants to section 10, we're going to read part, uh, verse 62. That's section 10, verse 62. Here we go. Yea, and I will also bring to light my gospel, which was ministered unto them, and behold, they shall not deny that which you have received, but they shall build it up, and listen carefully to this, and shall bring to light the true points of my doctrine, yea, and the only doctrine which is in me. So one of the great purposes of the doctrine covenants that we've been studying this year is to bring to light the points of Christ's doctrine. We're going to see many points of doctrines. By the way, that's not blunts of doctrine or foggy notions of doctrine. It brings to my mind sharp points, very specific points of doctrine. So let's go through the living Christ now, uh, word for word, and point out many doctrines regarding Christ in this most valuable and precious testimony from the apostles of the Lord. Paragraph 1. As we commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ two millennia ago, we offer our testimony of the reality of his matchless life. There's one doctrine, his matchless life. No other person can even begin to compare with the life of Jesus Christ. Matchless life, if you're making little notes on a copy of the living Christ, you might just underline that. That's a major important doctrine. His life was matchless going on, and the infinite virtue of his great atoning sacrifice. That's another major doctrine. The atonement is infinite. You might underline the word infinite in paragraph one. Finishing paragraph one, none other has had so profound an influence upon all who have lived and will yet live upon the earth. Paragraph 2, Several Doctrines About Christ. Beginning of paragraph 2, you might underline, He was the great Jehovah of the Old Testament. The premortal Jesus Christ, in other words, was the premortal Jehovah. That was Jesus Christ before he got his body, before he was born on earth. He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And going on in paragraph two, he is the Messiah of the New Testament. 
That's another doctrine. Here comes another doctrine in paragraph two. Under the direction of his father, he was the creator of the earth. In other words, Christ created all things. By the way, be aware that Christ did not create us. He did not create mankind. Why? Because we are not creations. We are offspring of heavenly parents. So, paragraph two, underline or whatever, the creator of the earth. Then it goes on to quote scripture. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. By the way, going back to us, we were not created. We are the offspring of God. And in the creation scenes, in the scriptures and elsewhere, you see when it's time for the for mankind to be brought on the scene, the Father takes over. There's great symbolism in that because we are his offspring. We are not creations like trees and cows and rocks and mountains and lakes and so forth. Going back now to paragraph two, uh, additional doctrine about Christ. He was sinless. Though sinless, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So you might underline sinless. And then also, uh, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And what does all righteousness mean? Uh, you put a little note above that in your Living Christ document. Righteous, all, fulfill all righteousness means to fulfill the will of the Father. To fulfill the will of the Father. Then going on in that paragraph, he went about doing good. Yeah, was despised for it. His gospel was a message of peace and goodwill. You might even underline the gospel. The main focus of the gospel is to bring peace and goodwill as we follow the will of the Father ourselves. Going on with the document, he entreated all to follow his example. In other words, he invited everyone to follow his example. He walked the roads of Palestine, that's the Holy Land, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. He taught the truths of eternity. That's an important doctrine. Everything he taught, they were truths of eternity. You could underline that. Among other things going on now with the document, he taught the reality of our premortal existence. You might underline premortal existence. Perhaps you've noticed that very few Christian uh, religions and denominations even teach a premortal existence. That's vital to our understanding of our whole purpose in being here on earth and preparing for eternity, we had an eternity before this earth life. That's called the premortal existence. So underline that, that's a major doctrine. The purpose of our life on earth, another doctrine, the potential for the sons and daughters of God in the life to come. 
our potential, as you know, is to become just like our Father in Heaven. Going on with the next paragraph. He instituted the sacrament as a reminder of his great atoning sacrifice. That's an important doctrine. The sacrament reminds us of Christ's mission and his atoning sacrifice. You could underline that, atoning sacrifice. The document goes on to summarize. He was arrested and condemned on spurious charges. What does spurious mean? made up false false charges convicted to satisfy a mob and sentenced to die on calvary's cross calvary hill in the holy land is where he was crucified some more doctrine here he gave his life to atone for the sins of how many the sins of all mankind, he paid the bill, so to speak, for all of the sins. But in order to have that forgiveness and freedom from sin that he provided, we have to do our part, which includes repenting and partaking of the ordinances of the gospel. Going on in this paragraph. His was a great vicarious gift. What does vicarious mean? It means proxy for us. He paid for our sins. He himself, that's a vicarious gift. His gift is effective for us if we will take advantage of it. His was a great vicarious gift in behalf of all who would ever live upon the earth. We'll do a little more with that in a couple more paragraphs. Going on, these prophets and apostles testify to us, quote, We solemnly testify that his life, which is central to all human history, by the way, you might underline that, his life, which is central to all human history, that's a doctrine right there neither began in Bethlehem, nor concluded on Calvary. Now here we have some real strong, powerful, important doctrine about who Christ was. He was the firstborn of the Father. You could underline that. And if you want to imagine going way back in time, way, way far back, unimaginably far, back in time and visualize in your mind our own Heavenly Father. This all comes from teachings from Joseph Smith. Visualize our own Heavenly Father having just finished his own mortal life upon an earth, having lived the gospel and lived worthy of exaltation after he was resurrected. So picture him in your mind's eye, uh, having achieved exaltation. Now, he is a heavenly parent, and he and his wife are sealed for time and for eternity, and they 
in your mind's eye, picture them as having just had their very first spirit child. And that child is a son. And that son is the baby that we know as Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so here in the living Christ, when it says he was the firstborn of the Father, that means literally that he was Heavenly Father's first spirit child. And of course, there's a whole lot more that we will someday find out about, but uh, he is the first born spirit child of the Father and has become our Savior. Now going on in this paragraph, he was the firstborn of the Father, the only begotten Son in the flesh, meaning he was born of Mary, with her being the mother and Heavenly Father being the Father that gave Christ the power to perform the atonement. Then going on, another doctrine, he's the Redeemer of the world. More doctrine, next paragraph, he rose from the grave to become, quote, become the first fruits of them that slept, meaning that Christ was the first one to be resurrected on this earth. Everyone from Adam and Eve, clear on down, to the time of his crucifixion had to wait to be resurrected until he was resurrected. And according to Doctrine and Covenants, section 133, verses 54 and 55, all of the righteous, meaning celestial quality lifestyles from Adam and Eve, clear down to, of course, John the Baptist and any other righteous people who died before Christ's resurrection, all of them were resurrected after he was resurrected. So that's what the first fruits of them that slept means in that paragraph. Now going on, as risen Lord, that's a doctrine, he is the resurrected Lord. He visited among those he had loved in life. He visited among those in Palestine. He also ministered among his other sheep. That includes the ancient Nephites here on the American continent, and it also includes the Lost Ten Tribes. We find out that in the Book of Mormon. In the modern world, continuing now with this marvelous document, in the modern world, he and his father appeared to the boy Joseph Smith, ushering in the long-promised, quote, dispensation of the fullness of times. That means the dispensation or period of time in which we now live. It's the dispensation of the fullness of times, meaning that in our dispensation, the gospel will continue to go forward throughout the whole world, and that it will continue and will not go into apostasy. It will continue right up to the time 
of the second coming of Christ. And then, of course, we'll continue on through the millennium. Let's go to the next paragraph at the top of the right-hand column. Of the living Christ, the prophet Joseph Smith wrote, quote, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. By the way, that statement means, in effect, that he was around in our pre-mortal life, he was chosen to be our Redeemer. Clear back then, he's the first, and he is the last. He will be the one who actually pronounces our final judgment. So, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. In other words, he's the living Christ. He's been resurrected. I am he who was slain. I was crucified for you. I am your advocate with the Father. That's one of my favorite scriptural statements. He is our advocate, meaning that after all we can do is we try to do what's right. When we slip up, we repent and humbly ask forgiveness and receive it. He is our advocate. He is the one that is making sure we have every chance to enter into exaltation. Going on with the next paragraph now. Of him the prophet also declared, quote, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives, that's doctrine. You could underline that, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God. By the way, right hand in scriptural language refers to the covenant hand. Christ is the source of covenants that we make in order to enter into exaltation. We'd have a whole lesson on that on the right hand. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Meaning again, he is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, and he was the first begotten or the first spirit child in premortality the spirit, first spirit, child of Heavenly Father. Going on with the quote now in the document, that by him and through him and of him the worlds, by the way, worlds here is plural, as you can plainly see, that means all of Heavenly Father's worlds that have been created by Christ and that yet will be. All of Heavenly Father's 
worlds, the inhabitants of those worlds, will be saved if they so choose by the atonement of Jesus Christ, which was performed by Jesus Christ on our world. So let's start at the beginning of that paragraph again. That by him and through him and of him, the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Now pay very close attention to the word unto. We know that we are all spirit offspring of our heavenly parents. We're all sons and daughters of heavenly parents, as stated in the proclamation on the family. So this is saying that we thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. That means through the atonement of Christ, we are given the opportunity to become exalted and become like our Father in heaven. So begotten sons and daughters unto God, all of Heavenly Father's children on all of his planets, use the atonement of Jesus Christ, just as we do, in order to work out their salvation and exaltation, meaning the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, where we become gods, as in section 132, verse 20, referring to husbands and wives who keep the commandments and use the atonement of Christ, section 132, verse 20, then says, then shall they be gods. In other words, the husband and wife, they, the husband and wife as gods are above all things. You could, uh, open to section 132, verse 20, and read that. It's a very important doctrine. So all of us on all of his worlds, that's almost a mind-boggling doctrine, all of us become sons and daughters unto God. Now, going on, we declare in words of solemnity that his priesthood and his church have been restored upon the earth. Those are two more important doctrines about Christ here. His priesthood and his church, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have been restored upon the earth, quote, built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Going on, finishing up now. We testify that he will someday return to earth. I don't know about you, but I have noticed that in recent general conferences over the last just very few years, there has been a marked increase in our apostles and prophets mentioning the closeness of the second coming of Christ. Our prophets 
and apostles, our seers and revelators, are telling us and reminding us and warning us and inviting us to look forward to the second coming of Christ, which, relatively speaking, is now much, much closer than ever before, of course. So, continuing with this paragraph, we testify that he will someday return to earth. And then, quote, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. There's an interesting doctrine coming up here now. And all flesh shall see it together. Everyone will, when Christ comes, everyone will see him coming. And it's interesting in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that them who pierced him, those who pierced Christ, in other words, those who crucified him, will also see that he is coming to earth for the second coming. That brings up some interesting questions because we would assume that they are in the spirit world mission field or the spirit prison, and even they will see him when he comes for the second coming. All flesh shall see it together. Going on with this paragraph, he will rule as king of kings and reign as lord of lords. You can see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, chapter 19, verse 16. We will have a theocracy during the millennium. Christ will be our lord of lords and our king of kings. It will be a marvelous government by an absolutely perfectly righteous uh, king and lord of lords, even Jesus Christ. And we call that a theocracy during the thousand years of the millennium. Now going on with this paragraph, some more doctrine. And every knee shall bend and every tongue shall speak in worship before him. Now, as I understand it, that does not mean that everyone will accept him as the Savior, but in those circumstances, when he's here, uh, it would be very unlikely for anyone not to accept him who has a fair chance to learn more about him and realize who he is. But at any rate, Every knee shall bend, and every tongue shall speak in worship before him. And then some more doctrine. This will happen at the end of the millennium, although there will be several partial judgments during the millennium, like being resurrected when we're 100 years old, if we happen to be alive during the millennium. And at the time that we die and resurrect after attaining a hundred years of age, we will have a partial judgment that lets us know if we have a celestial resurrected body, we know we're going to celestial glory. If we had a terrestrial resurrected body, we know that we're heading for terrestrial kingdom. If we had a celestial resurrected body, that would mean we're going to the celestial kingdom. That's a partial judgment. 
likewise with those who will go to outer darkness or perdition. Well, let's continue that. Uh, uh, finish that paragraph. Each of us will stand to be judged of him according to our works and the desires of our hearts. I love that phrase. We try to do what's right. If we have an honest heart, we're striving to do what's right. And so the desires of our hearts will have a major impact on the outcome of our final judgment. Well, now the last paragraph. We, we bear testimony as his duly ordained apostles that Jesus is the living Christ. That's marvelous doctrine. Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. That's doctrine also. He is literally the Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel, spoken of in scriptures, who stands today on the right hand of his Father, Again, right hand means covenant hand, and we know that it is through covenants and keeping covenants that we ultimately can attain exaltation and become like our Father in heaven. The proclamation reminds us that we will be becoming like our heavenly parents. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. I love that these great apostles and prophets chose the word happiness because the gospel makes me happy. It brings peace and contentment. It brings joy and Many, many wonderful things come from it, but happiness is just happiness, just plain happiness. I love that. So his way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Just by way of definitions, eternal life, as found in the scriptures, always refers to exaltation the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, where our family units are together. We have a family unit, and that family unit exists forever. That is exaltation. We actually become gods. We actually, as gods, husband and wife, together will have spirit offspring, just like our heavenly parents have had and are having. As heavenly parents, we will have spirit offspring and we will arrange for worlds to be created where we can send our spirit offspring just as heavenly father has done with us. And on the worlds that we have created for them, they can receive a physical body and we will use the same plan of salvation for them as has been used by our Father in heaven for us. That comes from the first presidency statement many years ago. We will use the same plan of salvation 
as our Father is using for us. That's what eternal life means. And it is, we are constantly reminded in the scriptures, it is the happiest and most satisfying lifestyle in the universe, that of becoming gods and having our own family unit continue and doing what our heavenly parents are doing now continually. And then finishing up, God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son. Signed by all 15 of the apostles, seers, and revelators in the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve at that time, January 1st, 2000. If you look at these signatures, you find that the first seven of these have passed away now. Gordon B. Hinckley, Thomas S. Monson, James E. Faust, Boyd K. Packer, L. Tom Perry, David B. Haight, and Neil A. Maxwell. And then the last eight of these signatures are still serving today in our First Presidency and Corp of the Twelve. Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, M. Russell Ballard, Joseph B. Worthlin, Richard G. Scott, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, Henry B. Irene. By the way, of course, Brother Scott, Richard G. Scott, uh, Robert D. Hales, back up a little bit, Joseph B. Worthlin, those three have passed away now. This testimony, this marvelous doctrine, the living Christ, I bear witness of in great gratitude for the doctrines about Christ that it so clearly teaches, and I leave that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.